This morning as we worshiped and sang and everything, I, several thoughts went through my mind as we did that. Uh, it, was, it was kind of a, some of them just kind of struck me a bit. Uh, one thing was when uh, Matt read the text during the middle of the songs, and he read Psalm 26. Now, I know that Jeff is leading us through a reading of the entire book of Psalms as we're uh, uh, on Sunday morning, and each week he just goes to the next one. But I, I could not help but think, if I were going to be preaching a, an election day sermon, that psalm might very well be the text I would choose. It's an amazing text. Now, you say, what is an election day sermon? Well, you don't know your church history very well, your American history very well. Back during the early parts of our country, that was the most famous sermon preached by any pastor on any give, in any given year. It was called the Election Day Sermon. I've got, a, I've got about four volumes of Election Day sermons back in my, in my study, and, and they are, they're not overtly political sermons, but they're just sermons about issues and, and thoughts about what uh, Christians need to be thinking about. And I just thought about that as I as, I, as we read through that responsively, as, as, as Matt read the first half and we read the second half, especially there in the very middle of it, I just, I, it just hit me. I'm not, this is not Ephesians, obviously, but it just, it just hit me that when it said, I, I do not sit with deceitful men, nor will I go with pretenders. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I shall wash my hands in innocence, and I will go about your altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and declare your wonders. I thought about, boy, that's a, that is a, a, a contemporary truth for our nation right now that we need to be praying about. So I would urge you to pray over and pray through Psalm 26 uh, over the next week and a half as we uh, prepare for Election Day. I, there won't be, I, I won't call you together on Tuesday for an Election Day sermon. But uh, if I did, I might would choose that text to do it with. Uh, second thing that kept running through my mind, and I, I always hate it when it's so far from Sunday, but is that this coming week is one of the, to me, one of the most uh, important Christian holidays on the Christian calendar, October 31st. Now, some of you are saying Halloween, a Christian holiday. You're not saying that if you've known me very long, but... The 31st is also the day that Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door uh, at the Wittenberg Chapel in, uh, and, in essence, started the Reformation that called the church back to biblical Christianity from its departure therefrom. Uh, a few weeks ago, I had the chance to show some people who are not members of our church, their neighbors in my neighborhood, uh, through the, the church. They wanted to see our new facility. And I said, certainly, I'd love to show you through. So I did. And, and I was amazed at, at one person who, when they came into the foyer and they looked at the doors coming into the sanctuary, this person said, that looks like the Wittenberg door. And I said, good for you. I think it does too. It, it just sort of is a, a, a call to worship, if you will, and a call to truth of those doors. Now, I'm not going into a lot of detail about uh, Reformation Day, the 31st, because if you're here Wednesday night, Brother Scott's going to be doing prayer meeting, and I think he's going to do something on that 
uh, for our Bible study on that night, so I won't steal his thunder. But I just, I just thought about that this morning, and I, if it had fallen a little closer to Sunday, we would have probably dealt with that a little more clearly. But those two things, Reformation Day and Election Day, are both coming up uh, on our calendars, and both need to be thought through very carefully and very humbly and very decidedly. So uh, I would encourage you to do that. So I'd encourage you to read Psalm 26 some more uh, in the next few days and, and think about that. And if you need an Election Day sermon or two, I've got books of them back there. You can come borrow one, and I'll let you read Election Day sermons from some of our forefathers. Not all what we would call evangelical Christians, but all with a quite interesting insight into the, uh, the, the, the convergence of faith and government, the convergence of faith and freedom, the convergence of faith and the republic. And it's kind of an interesting thing to read. When I was with the ACLJ... Uh, in in uh, Virginia Beach and Washington, we would uh, each year I'd have to prepare some sermons for different reasons, and and reading through those just kind of brought to mind the importance the church has always played in our nation. You know, we live in a day today that talks about the separation of church and state. That that's the, and they talk about it as though the church is to be way over here and the state is to be way over here, and the twain shall never meet. That's not what our founders envisioned when they wrote the First Amendment to the Constitution. Uh, they envisioned that the government would not have a heavy hand upon the church, uh, compelling the church into what they should preach or teach, and that the church should not receive its sustenance or its, its support from the state, that they would be independent in that way. But never did they think that the church would not have a vital role in the, in the policy of our nation. Uh, because they did, they, they, it did from the very beginning. Some of the main signers of the Declaration and the Constitution were, were strong believers, some pastors. Of course, pastors, they ought to just keep their mouths shut in those areas. You were supposed to laugh, but you didn't. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4 then, and I'll stop there. I thought I'd get a lot of amens on that even, but uh, you, know, you never know. Ephesians chapter 4, as, as we come into this section in the book of Ephesians, we find the Apostle Paul making a pivot. He's making a turn. Those first three chapters, as you have seen, I hope, have been heavily weighted toward doctrinal truth. They've been weighted toward knowing God. They've been weighted toward prayer. And, and, and Paul saying to the Ephesians, listen, I pray that you'll be enlightened. I pray that your heart will be enlightened. I pray that your mind will be enlightened. I pray that you will know what the will of God is for your life. And in doing that, in chapter 2 particularly, he lays down this heavy theological truth of by grace you've been saved by faith, and that alone, that not of yourselves, it's not of works, so that no man may boast. He talks about how, how the grace of God is a, a powerful matter. It's not, it's not some fluffy, nice, uh, little... Uh, easygoing thing. The grace of God is powerful. The grace of God is compelling. The grace of God is overpowering in one sense. And that, and, and in chapter two, verse uh, uh, verses one and two, you know, he says, "You were dead in your trespasses and sins, and, and you walked in those, and that's how you were, and you lived according to the lust of the flesh. You indulged in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and you were by nature children of wrath, just like all of us were." And then verse four, but God. But God, by His grace, did something. And He did something that you could not do for yourself. But God, 
be rich in mercy because of his great love of which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, but God made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved. I mean, that's, that's deep theological truth. That's deep doctrinal certainty that the Apostle Paul is giving. And, and we don't need to miss that. We need to see that. And so Paul spends these first three chapters saying, here's the foundation. Here, here, is the, here, here are the footers upon which your Christian life must be built. And it must be on a firm, solid, sure foundation of Jesus Christ alone, the grace of God alone, faith alone, and, and, and just builds around the great truths of those three chapters. Then he comes to, verse, uh, to, to chapter 4. And chapter 4, 5, and 6 are not undoctrinal. They're not non-doctrinal by any stretch. Now, we'll see tonight there's some great doctrine in these first six verses of chapter 4. But, but the one thing that, that Paul does do here is he pivots just a bit, and he says, on the basis of this great truth, on the basis of, of, of what I have said prior to this about the grace of God and the power of God and being enlightened by the Holy Spirit, in light of all that, when that has taken place in your life, what does the practicalness of the Christian life look like? What is the practical application of the doctrinal foundation? And that's what he wants to start us thinking about tonight. He will through the rest of this book. And he'll even talk about family relationships. He'll talk about church relationships. He'll talk about spiritual warfare. But in these first six verses, his main and primary concern is the unity of the body. The unity of the church. The unity of the people of God. I, I love that song. It's not a new one by any stretch, but that we sang tonight. But they'll know we are Christians by our love. By our love. They'll know that we're Christians by our love. And that love is the essence of unity, as we'll see tonight in these six verses. Follow along as I read, starting verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. And, and I... I'm mostly to love New American Standard translation. I hate this part. New American Standard says, showing tolerance for one another in love. That's not what the Greek text says. It says, showing forbearance or forbearing with one another in love. We'll talk about that in a minute, the importance of the difference there. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. The, the Apostle Paul here starts talking about living it out. He, he says, therefore, and again, I've told you anytime Paul says, therefore, and he loved to use that phrase, all the, in the Greek text, a lot of times the writers love to use that to say, okay, in light of, because of, in light of what I've said. So he says, therefore, based on what I've said previously in these first three chapters as we've broken them down in the English Bible, of course, we know that was just one running thought. It wasn't a, there weren't paragraphs, there weren't verses, there weren't even sentences the way we think of sentences 
in, in the original Greek text of, of Paul's letter. But, but he says, therefore, on the basis of what I've said before this, I want you to understand a few things. I want you to understand, first of all, that I am imploring you as a prisoner of the Lord. Paul, in, in, earlier in this book, in, in the first part of this book, he talked about being an apostle by the will of God. He, he talked about, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ, establishing his authority. In, in verse, four, verse 1 of chapter 4, he doesn't use, therefore I, the apostle of the Lord. He says, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, the one who is under submission to the Lord, the one who has been captivated by his grace, the one who has been saved by his grace, captivated by his grace, literally imprisoned by the grace of God. Paul is talking about something here that you and I need to understand, and that is that real freedom, real joy, real experience in the Christian life does not come from throwing off the, if you will, the, the, the confines of the Lord, but it comes by being a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other places, Paul chooses the word doulos to express that, the word slave. I, Paul, a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ sold out completely, submitted completely under absolute ownership of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here he says, I am his prisoner. I am captivated by the grace of God. I am imprisoned by the grace of God. And, and, and he wants you to know that's not a bad place to be. It's a good place to be. It's, it's, a, it's a thrilling place to be if you understand what it means to be a prisoner of the Lord. And, and he's saying that on the basis of that, not on the basis of my authority as an apostle where I could say, thus saith the Lord, here's what you're to do. But I want to say this to you as a prisoner of the Lord who understands this reality myself, who understands what I'm talking about because I am in him and I'm captivated by him. Therefore I, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord, of course there's a double meaning there too, you know. He's writing this from prison in Rome. He is not just figuratively saying, I'm a prisoner captivated by the grace of God, but he's also saying, I am a literal, physical prisoner. Some would say of Rome. I'm not a prisoner of Rome. I'm a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. Rome has put me here because of my preaching. Rome has put me here because of my faith in Christ and my declaration that he is God, but, but I'm not their prisoner. If, if the one to whom I'm a prisoner did not want me here, I wouldn't be here, is basically what he's saying. Uh, if, if Christ didn't have me here for a purpose, if Christ didn't have me in this Roman dungeon, prison, under Caesar's authority for a reason and a purpose, then I wouldn't be here. He has me here for a very real purpose. And part of that purpose is to be able to tell you at Ephesus and you at Grace Something about what it means to apply the doctrinal truths of this book, this letter that I'm writing. He says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, beg you. King James, I think, says, beseech you. We don't really use beseech much anymore. I've, I may say that to my wife every now and then. Honey, I beseech you to fix dinner uh, or something, but... Uh, you know, it's just not a very common term that we would use. When he says beseech, that King James translates, it just means I'm begging you. 
I'm imploring you. I, I want you to understand how important what I'm about to say is. That's, that's what he's saying. He's saying it, it's so important. I'm not just asking. I'm not just suggesting. I'm not just saying this to have something to write. I'm begging you. I'm imploring you to do this. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Now, the word walk there is a word that we do use a lot. I'm going to walk around the walking track out here. You know, we have a lot of neighbors who do that, and it's always a joy to come out here and and see people walking. And, and, and when we use the word walk, we talk about, I'm going to walk. And we, what we mean by that is I'm going to put one foot in front of the other foot, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to travel in, in, in this mode of transportation. I'm not going to drive my car. I'm not going to get on a bicycle. I'm just going to walk. And, and, and we use that word very frequently. When Paul says here, I urge you to walk, he's not talking about put one foot in front of the other. He's talking about here literally lifestyle. He's talking about your manner of living. He's talking about what other people see, and they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. That's a manner of walking. And what Paul wants to say here is, I'm begging you that if you are in Christ, I'm begging you that if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, you be cognizant of how you live. You be cognizant of how you walk. You be aware of what other people are seeing when they're looking at you. Because if you're raising your hand and saying, I'm a Christian, if by your attendance in church and your friends and co-workers knowing that, you're saying, I belong to Christ, he's saying, I want you to know something. They are watching your walk. They're watching how you walk. And I'm not talking about putting one foot in front of the other. I'm not talking about whether you're clumsy when you walk and you're always tripping over your own shoes or not. I'm talking about the way you live your life. Paul says that's important for people to see, and it's so important that I beg you, I implore you, I, I beseech you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Hmm. Walk in a manner worthy. Paul has been very clear in the first three chapters and in Romans and in Colossians and in Galatians. And the Lord Jesus Christ has been very clear in, in, in the Gospel of John and other places in the Gospels that there's one thing for sure. You cannot walk in a manner to, to, to earn or deserve salvation, okay? He's not saying here, I, I want you to walk a certain way. I want you to clean up your life a certain way. I want you to live a certain way as best you can so that you can get salvation. It's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, is because you now have salvation, because you now have that gift of God that has been given to you, because by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not a result of works, no man can boast about it, you are his workmanship, you are created in Christ Jesus for good works, and they're prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Here Paul is saying, now on the basis of that, I want you to walk in a manner that matches who you are. 
you do that by grace. Grace doesn't just save us, but grace also sanctifies us. Grace also matures us. And, and Paul says it's important that the world see that Christ is at work in you. How are they going to see that? Well, he says three things there in verse 2 that kind of will, will characterize this life. First of all, with all humility. All humility. Uh, humility is a matter that is in short order, I think, in our world today, even in our churches to a great extent. Humility basically says, I, I, don't, I don't really deserve anything. Humility is, in essence, something that says, you know, I, I, really, I really don't deserve what I have. It's been a gift of grace, and, and, and I, if I'd have been given what I deserved, I would have been given death and hell and, and, and wrath and everything else. But, but God, by His grace, has saved me. I am humbled by that. A lot of Christians who act proudly because of their faith. And, and when they do, they kind of puff up a little bit and they kind of look at other people and say, hmm, you're not as smart as I am. You're not as good as I am. You're not as religious as I am. You're not as any number of things as I am. I'm better than you are because I'm a Christian. Paul says nothing can be further from the truth. Paul said, you're just like them in, in your own power. You, you, you were exactly like them. You were, you were formerly walking in the course of this world. You were formerly walking according to the prince of the out power of the air. You're, you were walking in disobedience. You were walking in sin and lust and wrath. and You were just like everybody else. And God, by His grace, saved you. And, and rather than saying, wow, doesn't that make me great? It ought to be saying more. That just that humbles me. That the God of creation, the God of the universe, saved me. Did in my life what I could not do for myself. He saved me. And I bow before you. Years ago, I heard somebody use a definition of humility as this. I can't remember who said it. I think it was my pastor in seminary, but he was probably quoting somebody else too. But they said, you know, humility, humility is recognizing and acknowledging that God and others are responsible for all of your successes. Humility is recognizing that God and others are responsible for all of your successes. In other words, it was God at work in you and others working with you, and others ministering to you that, that brought you where you are and brings you where you are. Christianity has never been presented as sort of a lone ranger thing. It's always, it's always we're in this together. Humility, gentleness. The idea of gentleness there is an idea that carries with also the, the context or the, con, uh, the, the, the understanding of meekness gentle and meek, uh, gentle shows concern, gentleness shows care, gentleness is not overbearing, gentleness is, gentleness is not demanding, gentleness as meekness is strength under control and being able to, 
to not react, to not, not blow somebody away, but be able to gently care for them and come alongside them and minister to them. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, the calling of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do that with humility and do that with gentleness and do it with patience. Do it with patience. You know, patience with one another. Patience with someone who is not as far along the walk as you are. You, you, know, you know what really gets on my nerves? Confession here. It's Christians who have been a Christian for a long time and they just don't walk it. You say, I'm not being very patient. You know, get your act together. That really ministers to them, doesn't it? That really says I love you in a really, really great way. No, patience is seeing a brother or a sister in Christ who's not perhaps grown to where you have grown. You have to be careful about this. Keep the humility here. Don't get proud about this, but say, let me help you. Let, let me minister to you. Let me mentor you. That's a word that you hear mentioned around here sometimes. Let me, let me disciple you. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me teach you what Christ has taught me. That's patience with one another. Humility, gentleness, patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. Showing forbearance to one another in love. The uh, English Standard Version says, uh, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with, forbearance. You see this idea of tolerance. Tolerance gives it the uh, that New American Standard uses. Tolerance gives the idea of, okay, I'm just going to tolerate you. You know, I'm going to put up with you. You're, you're, you know, you ought to be ashamed of yourself for being the way you are, but I'll tolerate you. Forbearance is coming along again beside them and bearing their burden with them, caring about them in, in a much more deep and sympathetic way, bearing with one another in love, showing forbearance to one another in love. I can spend the rest of the night talking about how humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance are all wrapped up in the word love. You know, it's, it's, it, what he's saying here is that the overarching, the overguiding principle will be the principle of love to one another. Love your brothers and sisters. Jesus said, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. By this all men will know in, in John 13, 30, uh, 31 is it? or John, It's in John 13 anyway, 33. Uh, all men will know this. Uh, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. He didn't say all men will know you're my disciples if you, if you have the right theology. He didn't say all men will know you're my disciples if you wear a cross around your neck or earrings in your ear or a bumper sticker on your car or whatever, a lapel pin that says uh, that's a fish. Uh, that's not the mark. Nothing wrong with those. Don't go home and take your crosses off. you got a necklace on. Don't go home and say, oh, pastor said I shouldn't do it. That's not what I'm saying. Just saying that's secondary. And anybody can wear a cross. I, watching the news the other night, Madonna had a cross on. 
anybody can wear a cross. And, and many people wear, you know, I ask people sometimes when I see them, I'll say, uh, and, and it's kind of a situation where I can ask them a question, coffee shop or something, I'll say, hey, what does that mean? What? What does what mean? That, that cross, that, that jewelry you got around your neck, what does that mean? Oh, it's just a pretty piece of jewelry, don't you think? No, I think it's horrible. It's, a, it's an execution symbol. It's a death penalty symbol. Oh, no, no, it, it's, it's like Jesus, man. Well, what does that mean? I don't know. It's pretty, though, isn't it? You know, they don't know. Anybody can wear a cross. Anybody can put a honk, if you love Jesus, bumper sticker on your car. I like the one that says tithe if you love Jesus, you know, instead of honk. That's another story that we won't get into tonight. Showing forbearance, showing humility, showing gentleness, showing patience in love. Loving one another. You can't love somebody if you're not humble toward them. You can't love someone if you're not gentle toward them. You can't love somebody if you can't have patience and forbearance with them. Because love is looking at them and seeing their needs and meeting those needs without expecting anything in return. Love is not just saying, I love you. Love is not just saying, you know, I, I just I love everybody. You know, the old my favorite comic strip of all time is Peanuts and which one was it? Was it Lucy that said, uh, you know, I, I, I love all humanity. It's people I can't stand. You know, and that's kind of how we come across sometimes. We love everybody. Because we know we're supposed to say we love everybody. Paul's not talking about a generalized love. He just says, oh, I love everybody. Really, how do you love them? I don't hate them. Hate is not the opposite of love. Indifference is the opposite of love. Ignoring them is the opposite of love. You know, a, a proudness toward them, pride toward them, that's, a, that's an opposite of love. But love is being humble enough to say, I, I want to help meet your needs. I want to care for you. And all of that, he says, being diligent, all of that he says about being humility and gentleness and patience and Forbearance to one another, one another, one another, all through the New Testament. There are countless one another passages. Here Paul is using one again. Do this to one another within the context of the body. Number th Verse 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The idea of being diligent there is just work hard at it within the body. You see, just like love for the individual Christian is the mark of, of really being a disciple, they'll know we are Christians by our love. By this all men will know that you're my disciples. You have love for one another. That's, that's the individual mark for the believer of the Christian. Unity is, is the mark of the body. And, and here's the key. Jesus says in the latter part of John's gospel, 
He says in, in John 17, in that high priestly prayer, he says to his disciples and, and indirectly says to you and me, as he prays, I pray, pray that you'll make them one, even as you and I are one. And by, the, by this, men will know that you have sent me if they are unified, if they are one, as we are one. Jesus says, you know, love will be the mark by which men will know that you're his disciple. He says, unity of the body, unity of the church body will be that mark by which the world will say, wow, maybe Jesus is who he said he was. Now, I, I think Paul was concerned here that some might misunderstand that. And I think Paul was concerned that some might say, oh, so it's unity at all costs. It, it's unity just for the sake of unity. It's, it's, man, if there's somebody teaching a false doctrine, then just don't worry about it, overlook it, just say, oh, brother, I don't, I'm going to tolerate that. That's not forbearing, that's tolerating. Or, or, or if somebody is living in open sin and, and you, you won't go to them and confront them with it, as Jesus told us to in Matthew chapter 18, you studied that in Sunday school just a few weeks ago, we won't go confront it because, you know, that might harm the unity because they've got friends over here who might get mad at me and we'll just have all this disunity because of that. Or somebody says, I don't like the truth being preached. I want this being preached. And, and you know, we, we just, oh, well, that's okay. We'll just try to meld it all together and make it all happy. That's not biblical unity. So Paul adds verses 4, 5, and 6, which I'm just going to barely touch on. I'll come back to them later. But he has 4, 5, and 6 to, to talk about what this unity is. He says, being diligent to preserve the unity in the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, the body of Christ, and there is one spirit that brings that body together and holds that body in unity. Just as you were also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. He says, now, you're to love one another, you're to be gentle to one another, you're to be patient with one another, you're to, you're, you're to forbear one another, you're to be humble toward one another, you're to do all of that in the bonds of love, you're to, you're to, you're to love one another in a, in a genuine biblical sort of love. Don't forget that, he says. I want you to understand that. That is vitally important, but I want you to understand something else. You be diligent in all of that love to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And to have unity of the Spirit, it has to be based on truth. It's not unity at all cost. It's not unity at the expense of truth. It's unity based on truth. Folks, that's why Grace Baptist Church exists for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That, that's why we exist, because there is one calling, one hope of that calling. There is one body, one Spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. And you can't have a multiplicity of that and say you have unity. Stand on His truth. You walk in His truth. You live by His truth. 
and you preserve the unity of the Spirit by His truth. Well, we're going to come back to those in our next sermon out of Ephesians. But I want you to think about that in this coming week. Paul is saying, listen, the application of biblical truth is absolutely necessary. Biblical truth, doctrinal truth, is important. But it's not just important for your head. It's important to change the way you live. It's important to move you toward more Christ-likeness. It's important to show you the glory of the gospel and the truth of the gospel. Let's pray. Holy Father, we are grateful to you that you have called us by one calling. We are grateful to you, O Lord, that you have given us one faith, one body. And Lord, we recognize that you have called us to walk in a manner worthy of that truth and worthy of that gospel. Lord, forgive us for our sin of disobedience in that. Lord, forgive us when we've allowed things in our life to eclipse your glory and to hide you from from our believing eyes. Lord, take away that which eclipses you. Lord, as we're walking through this world, There is mire and traps. And Lord, because of that, we get spots of stain from sin. Dear Savior, wash us and declare us clean. Lord, help us know that great truth that there is no condemnation, no separation for those who are in Christ. Sin is removed. It is removed, and Lord, we ask you to separate it and separate us from its destructive power. May we enter into full fellowship with you. Lord, protect your work within our hearts. We are saved, but we would be saved from sin of every form and degree and danger, from sins that lie within our own darkened heart, And that we are scarcely aware or even there. Lord, cleanse them. If we have pride of which we are not conscious, O Lord, any unbelief that we are not aware of, if there is any form of idolatry which we have not yet perceived, we ask you, Lord, to search us as with search lamps, search lights. Spy them out. Spy out all the evil and and put it away. 
Lord, help us never to be satisfied just with the pardon of sin. But Lord, may we pray every single day with David, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. May we pray with the Apostle Paul, Lord, make us worthy, form us to be worthy and to walk worthy of the calling with which we've been called. Save us, Lord, we ask you from just ordinary religion. Give us that particular, peculiar grace that will make us a peculiar people in the eyes of many. Lord, help us to abide in Christ that we may live near to you every day. Lord, arouse in us a, a deep concern for all with whom we have contact from day to day. A co-worker, a fellow student, a neighbor. Lord, make us missionaries at home or in the street or in our work or in our classroom, wherever your providence has placed us, Lord. Lord, may we there be lights shining in darkness for your glory, pointing men and women to you. Father, this is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.